Well, uh, we're in Matthew 16, and uh, yeah, we're picking it up in verse 13. Um, so as you know, we've left the region of, of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, and I'm saying that we know that because I know you've read ahead and been faithful to study the text in advance. And Jesus has traveled north, about 25 miles south of Damascus. And uh, that's where this famous uh, discussion begins. So why don't we stand up and we'll read the word of God. Speaking of controversial issues, if you are currently a Catholic um, or have sympathetic towards some Catholic tradition and theology, uh, we're going to um, have a discussion today, <laughs> and uh, we're going to disagree, um, but hopefully we'll get through that. So let's go ahead and read the text. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Well, Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that we don't have that limitation at this point, but we can shout it from the rooftops that you are the son of man, that you are the Christ, and that you are the son of the living God and that apart from faith in you, no one will be saved. We thank you, Lord, that this is who you are, that you came, you died, you rose, and you ever lived to make intercession for us at the right hand of your Father. Lord, I pray that you would teach us through this text. I pray that you'd help us wade through about 1,500 years of tradition, and uh, that the text itself, what you meant by what you said, would be communicated to us, and that we would take hold of it, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. You guys make a lot of noise when you sit down. (laughs) I don't know why I haven't noticed that over the last 16 years, but yeah. All right, well, let's go back to the beginning there in verse 13. Uh, Jesus, uh, he comes to the region of, I know we all want to say Caesarea, or uh, I don't know, however everybody says it. It's pronounced Caesarea. It's Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So I think that the location uh, is important to the context of the things that are said here, and and we'll get to that. Uh, This city is not to be confused with the coastal city that most people say Caesarea or what's another, uh, whatever. Everybody say Caesarea. Okay, because when you go to Israel, I don't want you to get lost when you ask the cab driver to take you to Caesarea, because he'll say, what? It's Caesarea, and he'll go, gotcha. And, uh, and you might have to say, I mean Caesarea on the coast. 
Okay, so he doesn't take you up into the Lebanese foothills where Jesus is at this time. Okay, so it's not where Paul was imprisoned on the coast. This is inland, okay, north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in the foothills of Mount Hermon. It's this, the lush southwestern side. Uh, out of this city is this large uh, spring that flows out of the ground and is one of the three major tributaries to the Jordan River. This whole area here is just absolutely stunning. Some interesting history behind it. Before the Greek and the Roman era, uh, this place was dedicated to the false god named Baal Gad by the Canaanites. After the conquest of Joshua, uh, this is where the tribe of Dan fell into idolatry, worshiping the Baals there. And then as Hellenism uh, spread across the region, uh, nearly a thousand years later, following the conquests of Alexander the Great, the Greeks dedicated the place to a pagan deity named Pan. And then they, of course, built their shrine there to that, that deity. And then during the Roman era, uh, the Emperor Augustus gave this region uh, from about here south uh, to the Aqaba uh, to Herod the Great. And so Herod, uh, for Augustus's generosity, he built a temple there uh, next to the temple of Pan, a temple to Rome, and then a temple to Augustus, in, in keeping with the, uh, what we call the emperor cult. And, uh, and then Herod, the great son Philip, because uh, this is Caesarea Philippi, uh, he is the one that really beautified the city to uh, its zenith, making it just stunning. Um, so yeah, when it was all said and done, there was at least... Uh, three temple shrines to various deities. This is uh, what the site looks like today. It's just ruins. Interesting. And then coming down away from that cavern, you see all the green. That's where the, uh, the spring begins to flow. Um, the, the shrine to the, the god Pan was built over the cavern. And then you see other kind of plots as you go to the right. Uh, I don't know in which order the temples were to the various uh, deities. Um, yeah, how sad. But this is where the temple and city of Caesarea Philippi was located. Um, the, this area was just a crazy uh, headquarters, if you will, for pagan worship. And from a Jewish perspective, it was essentially the border, the gateway to the pagan world. So I think Jesus has come here way out of his way for uh, the delivery and discussion of what happens here. And so Jesus, being here, turns to his disciples and he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And now we've been building on this title that Jesus has uh, given to himself, or rather his father has given to him, the son of man. And it's going to develop more and more, much more, even from here throughout the rest of the, the gospel of Matthew. So here it is. Uh, Jesus uh, here assumes that he's the son of man. But what are the people saying about me? What's, what's the word in the herd? So they said, and, and follow this interesting logic of the people. Some say that John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. And still others are saying, 
just one of the prophets, perhaps. So who are they saying the Son of Man is? Now, you remember from uh, chapter 14, Herod the Tetrarch, who had murdered John the Baptist, when he heard that Jesus was performing all these miracles, he said, this is John the Baptist. And that explains why these powers are manifest in him. Now, I don't know why he would come to a conclusion like that. I don't know if it was his conscience. You know, he murdered the guy, and he was completely innocent. And maybe it would just help his conscience feel better that, well, John's actually fine. Okay, uh, whatever. Others, because of the prophecy that is in Malachi, Old Testament, chapter 4, uh, believe that the Son of Man was Elijah. The prophecy reads this way. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, Malachi has been, uh, not Malachi, but Elijah's been dead for quite some time now, and God promises to send Elijah, okay? So I can see how some might have thought that Jesus might be Elijah, uh, but the people weren't exactly, you know, well-informed through rabbinical tradition about the interpretation of prophecy. Uh, You'll notice in the prophecy how God says that he's going to send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The sense of the passage is that Elijah will come just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, whether the, the average person in Israel knew that part of the prophecy is uncertain, but the great and dreadful day of the Lord did not come in the days of Jesus' first coming, right? I mean, I've read every passage in the Old Testament that talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Um, It hasn't happened, okay? It hasn't happened. And um, so, that's why some believe, if you're into eschatology, that uh, Elijah is possibly one of the two witnesses that comes just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord that's recorded there. Well, that's a discussion for another day. Um, I can see how some of the people could have thought that. Others were saying that he's the prophet Jeremiah. No, this one is far more difficult to figure out why people were thinking this. Now, some people believe that uh, because of a statement in the book of Maccabees, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, it says that Jeremiah had hid the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense uh, from the Babylonians when they came and invaded And so maybe in some tradition, they were thinking, well, Jeremiah is going to come back and he's going to say, here's the ark and here's the altar of incense, these most sacred uh, furnishings for the temple. That's That's a shot in the dark there. Okay, I have, I'm just saying it's a possibility. And then others said that Jesus might just be one of the other prophets, but nobody named specific. So there's a little bit of confusion going on in Israel. Everyone is just kind of guessing. But what is strange is that all of the guesses are dead people. They're dead people. Nobody is guessing that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Okay? Everybody is guessing that he's some kind of forerunner to the Messiah like John the Baptist was or Elijah would be. Okay? You know what it sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like people today when it comes to religion general about the identity of Jesus. Um, just the other night, uh, I read an article that was talking about the common values between uh, Christianity and Judaism. You know, we often talk about Judeo-Christian values, and people hear that, they don't understand it, 
And uh, even after this article, nobody understood it. Because I was curious, well, what are people thinking about this? So I went to the comments section, and I must have read, you know, 60 or more comments. Everyone was an expert, and nobody knew what they were talking about. And uh, so I was being real careful to make sure that nobody's name from Calvary Chapel was in those comments, because I was coming for you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, God, of course, hasn't called us to know all the facts about him and about his word, but what we do know and can know, we should know it accurately. Amen? I would rather us as a fellowship know a little bit that's true than a lot that is nonsense, okay? Because that's really the state of our world today, and I would say the vast majority of of, uh, people that claim to be Christians, there's just so much confusion. The question he asks refers to the identity of the Son of Man. As we said, up to this point, Jesus has used this title many times, but he's always using it in reference to something. So I want to test your math a little bit on this. He said earlier, Matthew 9, that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin on earth. And the Pharisees, remember, they were like, hold the phone. Only God has authority to forgive sin. And Jesus is like, yep, that's right. Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The, the, the implication is, I'm in charge of this whole thing. Okay, Matthew 12. It is the Son of Man who will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, just as Noah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. And that experience of Jonah's is a sign about me. So, in other words, I'm a fulfillment of an Old Testament type or sign. Matthew 12. The Son of Man is one who sows the good seed of the gospel. Matthew 13. The Son of Man has charge over the angels of heaven. He forgives sins on earth, and he's in charge of the angels. Matthew 13, 41. Who does the Son of Man sound like to you? Forgiving sins, Lord of the Sabbath, charge of the angels. There's, there's way more to come in the Gospel of Matthew. The Son of Man will come in his Father's glory and with his angels to reward everyone for their deeds. Matthew 16. The Son of Man is coming with his kingdom. Matthew 16. The Son of Man is going to rise from the dead, Matthew 17. The Son of Man is the one who saves the lost, Matthew 18, 11. The Son of Man will sit on the throne of his glory, Matthew 9. This is all in red, by the way. These are Jesus' claims. The Son of Man will return to the earth, and everyone will see him, just like they see lightning strike from one end of heaven to the other, Matthew 24, 27. The Son of Man will come, and this is... This is a key phrase here that every Jew familiar with the Old Testament should have said, I know exactly who he is. The Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven, Matthew 24. The Son of Man is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Matthew 26, 24. And the Son of Man will be seen sitting at the right hand of the power, speaking of God Almighty, Matthew 26. Okay, who does he sound like to you? (laughs) He certainly isn't just any man or simply a man, and he's not just one of the prophets. Uh, What prophet has ever come with the clouds, exercised authority over nature, over demons? What prophet has charge of the angels? And what man sits at the right hand of God? Clearly, this is the son of man, as we've pointed out earlier, from the vision of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13. It says this, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold... 
one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. In his prophetic vision, Daniel sees him coming on the clouds. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. Jesus is brought before him to be coronated, to be crowned as king of the universe. It's great. He'll exercise everlasting dominion. It will be unrivaled, unconquerable, and his kingdom will be eternal. Who is the son of man? So Jesus makes the question more personal. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Let's forget all of that stuff. Who do you say that I am? That was an interesting experiment, fellas. But what do you say? Typically, as Simon does, he stands up and he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Notice that Peter did not say of the son of man that he is the Christ, right? Peter knew that Jesus had always been talking about himself. So he said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. So Peter says a lot here. He uses another title that is just as significant in the scriptures as son of man. He calls Jesus the Christ. The, the word means anointed, but it means specifically anointed by God. He's, the Hebrew word is Messiah, and the Messiah is the primary subject of Old Testament prophecy. He is the great promise of God to the Jews and the people of the world in the Old Testament. He is the Jews' great expectation. He's the only hope of the world in the Old Testament. But before the issue of the Son of Man, before the title of the Christ, and from all eternity, he's the Son of the living God. He's always been the Son of God. He didn't come to be. He's always been. And this is just filled with so much significance to us. The, being the Son of God, what Peter is saying, necessitates that he is of the same nature as God, both metaphysically and morally. So Jesus, the Son of the living God, is eternal. He's infinite. He's transcendent. He's omnipotent, all power. He possesses all power. He's omnipresent. He's everything that God is, Every, absolutely everything. You cannot separate his nature from the Trinity. And morally speaking, just like the Father, he is holy. He is love. Just as God is love, Jesus is love. He is righteous. He's undefiled by sin. He's morally pure in every sense of the word. He is everything that his Father is by nature. But even though they're the same by nature, they are, there are differences between them. They're different persons. Amen? They have different roles, right? I mean, since the incarnation, when Jesus assumed a human body, they differed in their mode of existence. God the Father does not have a body. Only God the Son has a body, and it's now permanent. Jesus will always, for the rest of eternity, exist in a human body. Of course, at the present, it's glorified, perfected. It's like a physical, metaphysical body. It's a trip. Um, we'll get to that at the end of the gospel, uh, but we are all headed toward that. Amen?
Okay. Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. Understand that? That refers to his incarnation. That is his humanity. But Peter refers to him as the son of the living God, which speaks of his deity. It, it addresses the fact that God is in man, the man Christ Jesus. So neither aspect of his being, though, is, we might say, in parts, okay? but both in their entirety, in its totality. That is, Jesus is not part man and part God, or we would say what has been uh, said in the past, he's half God and half man. That is a terrible heresy. It's, it's, it's not true. He is fully God and fully man. All of God was manifested in Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, for in the body of Christ dwells all the fullness of deity, Colossians 2.9. <laughs> Notice, all and fullness. Paul doesn't want any confusion about this, that in the body of Christ dwells all the fullness of deity. You guys, it's important that we, we say what the scriptures say and we mean what they teach. It's important that we confess as the Father does what he does about Christ. He's God in the flesh. That is what son of man, son of God mean. He is the God man. Two natures, divine and human in one person, not in conflict, but in perfect harmony. These realities are being revealed when the Bible refers to Jesus as the son of God and the son of man. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, he is nobody to us. He's not a savior. He's not a redeemer. He's not a justifier. He's nothing. Okay? He's one of us, and that would make him useless to us. Okay? He is everything that Peter has just said. You remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, the time that you know, Thomas finally shows up, and Jesus says, no longer be unbelieving, but believing. And he says, the scars, my hands, my side. And then Thomas, what does he say? My Lord and my, my God. My Lord and my God. Blasphemy if it's not true, okay? Paul refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. Our great God and Savior, Titus 2.13. Peter calls Jesus our God and Savior, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. He is the creator who provided existence for everything that exists. John 1, 1 through 3, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and Hebrews chapter 1, 2 through 3. And then I love how Hebrews 1 goes on. If you haven't read that lately, go back and read it again. But the great conclusion is in the text is the Father calls his Son, God Almighty, and commands the angels to worship him. And if the angels worship him, guess what we should do? So let's make sure that our confession corresponds with the scriptures, that we say what scripture says. And then we will get the object of our worship, our devotion, and our adoration correct. Amen? And then we'll hear what Jesus said to Peter. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona means son of Jonah. Bar is the Hebrew word uh, for son. I love this statement here that the person who gets Jesus right is, what does he say? Blessed. The one who gets Jesus right is blessed. That's, they're happy. They're satisfied because God's favor has rested upon them. 
Yeah, if Jesus is not who the scriptures say he is, there just is no benefit. There is no blessedness to be experienced by him or because of him, okay? If Jesus isn't our great God and Savior, who cares? What's the big deal? Why does this matter? Why would anyone put their trust in him? Why would anyone worship at his feet? But if he is who the scriptures declare him to be, then he is everything. As Paul says, he is our all in all. And whoever has him as their all in all, Jesus said they are blessed. They're satisfied. Literally, they're happy. So where does happiness lie? In Jesus. Isn't there a hymn like that? Happy in Jesus? Something like that? What? Trust and obey? That's to be happy in Jesus, right? Okay, yeah. But whoever has Jesus less than he is, that's a truly sad state to be. But then before Peter could, um, you know, take credit for what he knows about Jesus and this blessedness that he's experiencing, Jesus says that what you know has been revealed to you, not by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. So Peter's understanding of who Jesus is is has come by divine revelation. Obviously, everybody else was like, he's so-and-so. He's Jeremiah. No, Peter, by divine revelation, he's ID'd the Son of Man. It's great. Oh, how happy. Imagine walking with Christ. So it's, it's been two and a half years at least up to this point. And then this revelation dawns upon him. You know, at one time, Peter said, you know, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But now that this fuller revelation of who Jesus is has come upon Peter, he's like, the only thing I want to do is be with Jesus. And I'll go to the ends of the earth with you. I'll do whatever it takes. Okay? Now, that's in his heart at this point. He actually doesn't have what it takes to do that, but it's coming. It's coming at Pentecost. And uh, uh, the Sanhedrin that he was so afraid of before the resurrection, he will stand up to afterwards. Isn't that great? It's so sweet. Yeah. But for now, he's, he's blessed, knowing and believing. And, and I just pray that Christ has been revealed to you, that you might know him as the scriptures declare him to be. I pray that all of us would worship him as the angels adore him, trusting him without fear in the face of our culture, and just following him without reservation. All real satisfaction, all real blessedness lies here with Christ who created you, who came, he died for you. He rose again, Paul says, for our justification. He's currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercession for you and trust me, you need it. I need it. And when the time comes, he's going to grab his sword and he's going to return and he's going to redeem the earth. Okay, That's our king and I'm looking forward to all of that. Jesus continues, he says, and I also say to you, that's to Peter, and I'd say that because there's some confusion about this, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What does that all mean? People haven't wrestled with this over the centuries at all. Yeah. Well, over the span of church history, some have gotten way more out of the text than what is actually in the text, and certainly way more than Jesus ever meant, and way more than we see played out in the rest of the New Testament. And then because of that particular interpretation, later on, others have reacted. They've reacted and have done all they can to distance themselves from it, 
And by doing so, they wound up in error on the other side. Okay? A reactionary interpretation is, a, is, a, is just a, being reactionary is dangerous when you come to the scriptures. So the Roman Catholic Church believes that in this passage, Jesus was elevating Peter and his successors to the status of Pope, okay? Meaning that Peter and his successors would be the head of the church here on earth as they stand in the place of Christ infallibly between God and his people, okay? The Pope uh, is called the Vicar of Christ. It's on his helmet. I don't know what that thing's called his hat, it says vicar of Christ, literally in Latin, okay, in the place of Christ, in the place of Christ. No Protestant preacher should ever, ever receive that title. I don't care what the tradition is, okay? Now, I assume that they use the Latin title as opposed to the Greek title because the Greek equivalent of the Latin is antichrist, the exact equivalent, okay? I don't think, I think the people would have thought, that's probably not uh, okay, okay? Be that as it may, there's no talk of the Pope in the text. Do you see it there? There's no talk of successors. There's no discussion about uh, infallibility in the passage. There's no discussion about Peter being in the place of Christ or being the head of the global church. Not only is it None of that's in there. It, it cannot be found anywhere in the scriptures. Okay? Uh, this explanation of the text is not an interpretation at all, but rather an invention of Roman tradition. Okay? And, uh, and a very convenient, too, because if you can interpret the scriptures this way, you can consolidate power in a certain place, and then you can rule uh, supremely, as the Catholic Church did for a number of centuries. But then later on, the reformers in the 16th century, of course, they were vehemently opposed to this explanation, as they should have been. And instead of just interpreting the text at face value, they reacted to the Roman view and went to great lengths to just kind of remove Peter altogether. And I truly believe that if the Catholic Church had not interpreted the passage the way they did, the reformers would not have interpreted it the way they did, okay? But that's just human nature. So I don't want to, I don't be too critical of them because I can be reactionary and so can you, okay? And we need to guard ourselves against it, okay? But the interpretation of the reformers, uh, it, it did at least utilize some of the language from the text, whereas the Catholic Church added tons of language to the text. The problem for the reformer is that Peter actually is in the text, is he not? And Jesus is specifically speaking to Peter. He begins by speaking to Peter in verse 17. He finishes his discussion with Peter in verse 19. And then you see in verse 20, he starts talking to all the boys. Now in verse 17 through 19, Jesus refers to Peter using the second person personal pronoun in the singular six times. He's talking to Peter, okay? The controversy lies in the words of Jesus I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The question is, what does Jesus mean by the word rock? And whatever he means by it, he means to build his church upon it. Now, in the Greek language, there's a play on, on words here. Jesus says, you are Peter, that's Petros, which means rock. 
And when Jesus says, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Jesus uses a pun to make a point. And the scriptures, you guys, are filled with puns, just like Pastor Roger is, okay? <laughs> Everything is a pun with him, okay? And some people want to make this huge distinction between these two Greek words for rock, Petros and Petra. But Greek scholars warn against it because in Greek literature, there's often no distinction between them. Also, when Jesus actually said this to Peter, he was speaking in Aramaic. And there's no two words in the Aramaic. He only had one word to choose from, both for Peter's name and for the rock. So he basically said, Kepha, Kepha. That's what he said. Kepha, Kepha. So at face value, Jesus is saying to Peter, you are Kepha, and upon this Kepha, I will build my church. Guess what? The book of Acts confirms it. It confirms it. Many of the reformers said, no, Jesus will build his church on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the rock that Jesus is talking about. Well, the grammar doesn't suggest that, and the context doesn't demand it. But if you're trying to distance yourself from someone else, I can see how you come to that, okay? The grammar and context point to Peter being the rock on which Jesus will build his church, okay? But what does it mean? How does it play out in the book of Acts? Well, in the Gospels, first of all, it becomes pretty clear that, you know, Peter rises to the top, at least as a leader among the 12. He's their spokesman, as we see in this passage. He's not greater than them. He's, he's a leader among equals. You remember in John chapter 21, Jesus is restoring Peter, right? Around breakfast there by the sea. But he's also commissioning Peter. Peter, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my lambs, three times. Okay. When we move to the book of Acts, Peter continues as the spokesman. He certainly takes the lead. So pay attention to this. In Acts 1, 15 through 21, he's the one who leads the apostles in the selection of someone to take the place of Judas, who was dead. In Acts 2, 14 through 41, Peter's the first apostle to stand up and preach to an unbelieving audience. In fact, he's the only other apostle we have a record of preaching other than Paul. 3,000 people get saved from his sermon. The church was born at that time. And in that sense, Jesus began to build his church on Peter and his preaching. When Peter and John went to the temple for prayer in Acts chapter 3, they first encountered the, the lame man at the gate beautiful. John is with him, but Peter does all the talking. The man is healed, he's leaping and everything, and they move towards Solomon's portico. Peter there also, not John, preaches the gospel to the masses. 5,000 people are saved. That's a big deal. Sure looks like Jesus is building his church on the ministry of Peter. After he preached on the portico, they were arrested for the first time. Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached to the Jewish Sanhedrin, those that he was once afraid of. Now he's telling them to take a hike. Acts chapter 4, 8 through 22. In Acts 5, Peter was the one who pronounced judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the church. And then because of this, fear came upon the whole church. God meant business. Peter had risen to such prominence in the early church, even among the apostles, that people would drag their, their sick down to the streets, hoping that Peter would walk past and that his shadow would be cast upon them, and they were all healed. 
had a reputation. Peter and all the apostles were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, but only Peter is named, Acts 5.29, implying that he was in the lead, that he was the spokesman. Peter's the one who pronounced judgment on Simon in Acts 8.20. Peter's ministry is the only one tracked among the original apostles. I think Jesus' statement is being confirmed in the book of Acts. It was to Peter that Christ gave the vision of the unclean food, demonstrating that the Gentiles were not to be considered unclean, but the gospel was to be preached to them. So he preached to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa. When Agrippa learned that the Jews liked that, he thought, I'll go after the ringleader. So he arrested Peter, had plans to execute him as a public display after the Passover, but we know there was a jailbreak. Uh, the angel came to his rescue. Acts 15.7, it says that it was acknowledged by all, it was acknowledged by all that God had chosen Peter to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So check this out. Peter was the first to preach the gospel to the Jews. He was the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts 2 to the Jews, Acts 10 to the Gentiles. Jesus built his church initially on the preaching of Peter. That's all that Jesus means by that Uh, metaphor. And those metaphors are used many more times elsewhere of other people. In Ephesians, it says that the apostles, the church is built upon the apostles and prophets. But then Paul says in Corinthians, there's no other foundation but Jesus Christ. Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. But Paul calls himself a master builder of the church. (gasps) Is that blasphemy? Or is it just true in a certain sense? Of course, Jesus is the foundation of the church. He is the builder of the church. But as we know throughout all the scriptures, he uses humans. That's the crazy part. Okay, He used human instrumentality. So there's, it's, it's not a big deal like history has made it about Peter. I, I could go on with many more examples. It doesn't mean that Peter was the pope. There was no successors that took his place throughout the centuries. The pope today does not come from an unbroken line of popes back to Peter. That's a fabrication of history, okay? The Pope is not infallible in his seat. You've heard him, it said ex cathedra. That means when he speaks out of the seat, literally. He's not infallible when he does that, as you know, okay? Peter was just an instrument by which Jesus initially did this. Certainly wasn't permanent. And Peter actually didn't accomplish more or most among the apostles, but the building started with him. Peter actually seems to take the back seat as soon as Paul rises to prominence. And in fact, on one occasion, Paul had to confront Peter, rebuke him, and correct his behavior in Galatians chapter two. You can't become Pope if if that happens, it's over, okay? But none of this changes the fact that Peter was the primary agent on which Jesus initially built his church in its infant stages, okay? If you totally disagree with my interpretation, let's just talk about it. Bring your list and we'll chat, okay? Jesus finishes verse 18 with his declaration that, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I care more for this, actually, than I do the whole discussion with Peter. But I do pray that Jesus uses me as something to build his church upon, too. Amen? Yeah. This is a promise regarding the church. She will persevere. Now, the church here does not refer to Calvary Chapel Centralia, okay? or a local congregation anywhere, but to all believers who have trusted in Christ throughout the ages, from Pentecost, 
when Paul pre- or Peter preached the first sermon until Christ returns for his bride. Okay? The gates of Hades, the gates of Hades, very interesting statement, has way more significance to people in the Middle East in the first century. But Jesus is saying that his church would be built, his church would succeed in spite of the fact that the gates of Hades will come against it. Now, I don't think, as I said before, that it's a coincidence that Jesus made this statement at Caesarea Philippi. Okay, now this, of course, is an artist's recreation of what they believe this all looked like in the first century. This place, you guys, it was the gates of hell. To the Jew, it was the gates of hell. Okay? Behind Jesus was the promised land, the temple, the people of God, the covenants, all that stuff. While before him and beyond this barrier was the pagan world where there was nothing of the living God. It was Satan's domain, and it was into this domain that the church must go with the gospel. I love it. I love it. It's going to go on the enemy's territory, and it's going to do well. It will prevail. Okay. Hades is here a reference to the domain of hell, as if it's this great city with walls and gates, and inside were the forces of, of death, presumably Satan and his demons. <clears throat> so the statement, the gates of Hades, refers not to you know, physical gates to a city, but actually to the kinds of things that took place at the gate of ancient cities, keeping in context with what Jesus is talking about, which is essentially war. It was at the gates where military strategizing took place. That's where it happened. It is this satanic effort that will come against Christ's church, but it will not succeed. It is Christ who will ensure that his church will endure, and here we are, all across the globe, okay? We were at the leadership conference um, just a few weeks ago, and it was reported that in, since 2016, a thousand affiliated Calvary chapels have been planted. I love it. I love it, okay? Now, that says nothing about the Calvary chapels that are being planted that are not affiliated, like Living Waters in Bend with Pastor Greg Stone, okay? And this is saying something in light of recent statistics that more churches are closing their doors than new churches are opening. And the rate of churches closing their doors is exponentially higher than the ones opening. Now, Calvary Chapel is not the only one that's growing. Many groups are thriving in the world. And what blesses me is that the ones that are thriving are the ones that are committed to the teaching of Scripture and the gospel. The, the Calvary chapels are thriving. You know, through the pandemic, when so many churches just caved and struggled and all that, uh, most Calvary chapels grew, just like we did. Isn't that sweet? I love it. I love it. So pray for the church globally, not that she'll survive, but that she'll thrive. Amen? That she'll just keep growing. Okay, the gates of Hades is always before us, but it will not prevail. And then to add to the fact that Christ would build his church on Peter, he says, and I will give you, still talking to him, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, we're still talking to Peter. You is still singular, and Jesus is bestowing great privilege on Peter. Now, in Jewish culture, and especially in their religious tradition, Jesus is speaking their language Keys refer to authority, refers to authority, binding to forbidding and loosing to permitting. And here in its context, 
It's in the, the context of the kingdom of heaven as it relates to the church here on earth. Okay? Christ is bestowing his heavenly authority to his earthly agent. Again, Peter is a leader among equals. All the apostles wielded the same authority okay, in the first century. So the issue of binding and loosing, it's going to come up with commentary in Matthew chapter 18. So I'm going to save it mostly for then, okay? Uh, and it's going to be used in the context of church discipline. And uh, I think it's the same here, just not much exp- explanation. But Jesus is giving Peter, and then later it'll be placed in the hands of the church, as we'll talk about, uh, and their leadership to discipline the unrepentant sinner by exclusion and to restore the repentant sinner to fellowship. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that. But the, the, the point here is the church must be self-governed and it must be self-policing if there's to be any order in it. Okay, if Jesus didn't organize things this way, uh, the church would not have survived throughout the ages, well less a single age. Okay, the church needs this kind of stuff. And we'll, we'll get to it in chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Let's finish real quick, okay? Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So Jesus is finished speaking to Peter specifically. He turns to the boys and he gives this instruction that he is the Jewish Messiah should not be broadcast at this stage in Jesus's life and ministry. It's going to cause, it would cause too much of a stir among the people because remember some of them were starting to put two and two together and they tried to make him king. That would have went super well with the Romans. Okay. So he, he doesn't want that happening. He doesn't want the people collectively saying that to the Pharisees, because that will get them all worked up. And then he doesn't want that getting to the Roman authorities, because then it'll be an issue of insurrection, and things won't go as God wanted them to. Okay? That Jesus is the Messiah is going to be made public on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, okay? which is less than a year away from our time here. And it's significant to point out that Jesus was crucified four days later. As soon as it comes out publicly that he's Messiah the Prince, four days he's crucified. Okay? So Jesus knew what he was saying. Not yet, boys. Just keep it on the down low. Okay? His full identity will be preached to the masses as soon as the Spirit comes at Pentecost. And it's continued to this day just as we've done this morning. So in conclusion is the primary confession of the church. Jesus is the son of man. He is fully man. He is the Christ, the Messiah, savior of the world, and he's the son of God. He is fully God. He is the God-man, savior of man. Amen? And only through faith can anyone be saved. Go ahead and stand up.